Praise the Lord once again. This is Pastor Adams, president and founder of Truth Matters Ministries in Atlanta, Georgia. So thankful and so delighted that you've given us the privilege of teaching and sharing the Word of God today. And our intent and our desire is to ensure that we really stand upon the firm principles of truth as outlined in Scripture. We've been going through a series entitled Eschatology, the End Times, and we're going to continue in that today. But it's very important as we begin in this that we first pause and pray. The Bible says, with prayer and supplications, let your requests be made known unto the Lord. And Lord, we come before your presence because we know that you hear us. And not only do you hear us, but you also have power to perform the things that you say that you will do. And Lord God, we know that we have the petitions that we have desired of you because you told us that if we ask anything according to your will, you hear us. And this is the confidence that we have because you hear and you care. You said that your arm is not shortened, neither is your eye heavy. But you said that in so many occasions, our sins have separated between us and our God. And today, Lord, we just pray, forgive the sins of the people. Forgive the sins of everyone who's listening to this podcast today. Let them know that you are a loving, forgiving God and that your blood can cover. Though our sins be as crimson, you said that you would make them whiter than snow. Wash and sanctify and make whole today, God. Let someone come to the foot of the cross and receive redemption and let them be regenerated and walk in your righteousness so that they can stand justified and appropriate being glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And today we are going to continue in our teaching in the area of eschatology. But before we do, I just want to uh, bring your minds back to the words that were spoken by Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal said that truth is so obscure in these times, and he said that falsehoods are so well established that unless people love the truth, they can't even know it. And then true are the words of Mark Twain. He said that a lie will travel all around the world before truth can ever get its boots on. Michael Jackson also said that a lie really runs sprints, but truth, it runs marathons. And in this Truth Matters broadcast, we're going to uh, pick up in this podcast on some apocalyptic and end time characters. And we're also going to be looking at some personalities and symbolic descriptions that will help us understand what's to take place in the culmination of things as it relates to the end of the world. And we're going to talk about the four horsemen. And the four horsemen are sometimes really misunderstood. And as we've talked about things in previous podcasts about coming in clouds speaks of coming judgment and meeting in the air. It speaks of a spiritual transformation between the mortal and the immortal. 
and we saw that there were certain terms such as the uh, the aion meaning not the end of the world but the end of the age and likewise there are many other apocalyptic genres such as similes and metaphors and typology type of language that has been confused and the four horsemen of the apocalypse fall within that same category let's just say first of all that the four horsemen of the apocalypse are described in revelations chapter 6 verses 1 through 8 so who are they and what are they really the four horsemen are symbolic descriptions of different events that will take place in the end times and as we go through the four the four horsemen i think the first one we must understand of the uh, four horsemen is the apocalypse it's mentioned in revelation 6 and 2 and it says and i looked and there before me was a white horse its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest and so many people have described this first horseman as being jesus christ because there are so many other allusions to Jesus Christ being on a white horse. But I think that we at this Truth Matters podcast must first describe and identify this rider on the white horse as being the Antichrist. And this Antichrist will be given authority and will conquer all who oppose him. The Antichrist is the false imitator of the true cross who will also return on a white horse so I want you to understand so much about satanic and demonic activity the Bible says marvel not in Corinthians that Satan himself has transformed himself into an angel of light and within so many Masonic circles they call the light bearer and we believe that the light bearer that they're referring to is God of the Bible. But in essence, they consider the light bearer to be Satan. And you'll read it in Isaiah when he says that Satan was called. He said, I saw Satan falling down as light from heaven. He's called the son of the morning. And the Antichrist He wants to look like, he wants to act like, he wants to imitate Christ. So he comes on a white horse. But you guess something that I find very important. He had a bow, but he didn't have any arrows. And so many times the enemy of our souls, he will make you feel and he'll present himself as being forbidding and dominant and unsurmountable. But in reality, He's nothing but an artificial shadow. David said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why didn't he fear any evil? Because all a shadow is, is just sometimes a very misrepresentation of something that's real. There's no power in a shadow. There's nothing to fear from a shadow because the shadow is not the real thing. And here we find out that the Antichrist, he is not the Christ. He is not all power. He is not benevolent. He is not all power. He's not omnipresent. He's not almighty. He's just a weak counterfeit.
and the second horseman of the apocalypse appears in Revelation 6 and 4. It says that another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. And this second horseman refers to a terrible warfare that will break out in the end times. The third horseman is described in Revelation 6, 5, and 6, and therefore, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. The third horseman of the apocalypse refers to a great famine, and that famine will take place likely as a result of the wars from the second horseman. And the fourth horseman that's mentioned in Revelation 6-8, it says, I looked in there, before me was a, pl- a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over the fourth part of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So the fourth horseman of the apocalypse is symbolic of death and devastation. It seems to be a combination of the previous horsemen all collectively. The fourth horseman of the apocalypse will bring further warfare and terrible famines along with awful plagues and diseases. What is most amazing, or perhaps more even terrifying, is that the four horsemen of the apocalypse are just precursors to even worse judgments that come later during this time of tribulation. And from there, we're going to uh, discuss another aspect of eschatology in the end times, and it's a term that we've heard so many times, and it's called the War of Armageddon. And as we share in the War of Armageddon, as we teach in this aspect of eschatology, the War of Armageddon, I believe that we're going to be able to see the activity and the depictions of the four horsemen in their proper right. And in reality, since they're symbolic, there's not going to be actual physical warfare. So let's look at this. See, the Bible speaks of gathering together the combatants in a valley called Armageddon. And I know that when I was reading that book, Late Great Planet Earth, and we've seen so many sensationalized movies on television about the end times, and we've heard so many preachers and end time prognosticators suggest that there's going to be this terrible war and the blood's going to come up to the bridle of a horse, etc., etc. See, but this chapter begins with the command for angels to pour out vials of wrath upon the earth. Now, this wrath is summed up in the judgment of Babylon. Jerusalem is a symbol of God and his people. Remember that. Babylon is a symbol of Satan and his sinful principalities. Now, in my listening audience, remember the fact is that every specific reference to Jerusalem in Revelation concerns a new Jerusalem which sits in a heavenly, in a great, in a high mountain referred to as Mount Zion. And in Mount Zion, that houses the very temple of God in heaven. In the final home 
is the final abode of the victorious Israel, which follows the Lamb forever and wherever he goes. See, the enemy of God's New Jerusalem is a great city called Mystery Babylon. And where does it sit? It sits on many waters of the great river Euphrates until God's wrath finally demolishes it in Armageddon. So what's happening here? I believe a little reflection combined with the Holy Spirit enlightenment shows that Revelation is ingeniously using the terminology and landscape of the Middle East in a very unique heavenly and spiritual sense. Please make note of that. Let's look a little closer at the great river Euphrates. The Bible says, And the sixth angel poured out of its vial on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. This is in Revelation 16 and 12. Now, those like Hal Lindsey, who interpret Revelation's Middle East terminology, literally such as in the Left Behind series, 11th book, Armageddon usually apply this passage to Asian kings marching across a dry riverbed to shoot bullets at the Jews in the Battle of Armageddon. One well-known American radio preacher suggests a Turkish dam might be the means of drying up the river. But is this really what Revelation 16:12 is about? Let's just look at the literal drying up of the Euphrates River for the kings of the east. Now, in order to understand this prophecy, we must first study Bible history about ancient Israel and literal Babylon. Let's just take a walk back, if you if you don't mind. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. You can read about that in Daniel 1.1. Jerusalem was conquered and Judah was taken captive for 70 years. That's outlined in Daniel 2. Now, after 70 years, an amazing set of circumstances occurred. What happened? The Euphrates River was dried up. Babylon was conquered from the east and God's people were delivered. Now, this history forms the background for the true understanding of Revelation 16 and 12. Remember, we said that you must interpret the New Testament with the background music of the old. You see, ancient Babylon sat on the Euphrates River. You can read that in Jeremiah 51 and verse 63. See, it was a wall, it was a wall surrounded all around that city. The Euphrates ran through Babylon, entering and exiting through two spike gates whose bars reached down into the very riverbed. When these twins' gates were shut, and all other entrances were closed, Babylon was virtually impregnable. Now in 538 BC, on the night of the ancient Babylon's fall, her king and subjects were drunk with wine. You can read that in Daniel 5. So were the guards, and they forgot to fully close the double doors. Over a hundred years earlier, God had predicted concerning Babylon and the Euphrates. Listen to what God said. I will dry up your rivers in Isaiah 44 and 27. The Lord also spoke about Cyrus, 
the man who conquered Babylon, saying, I will open up before him the two leaven gates, and the gate shall not be shut. In Isaiah 45 and 1. Moreover, God calls Cyrus my shepherd and his anointed in Isaiah 44, 28 and 45 and 1. Thus Cyrus was a type of Jesus Christ, and he came from the east, according to Isaiah 46 and 11. Now housed in the British Museum in London lies the famous Cyrus Cylinder. What is that and what, what does it involve? Within the Cyrus Cylinder, which describes how Cyrus, a general of Darius, conquered Babylon, Cyrus and his army dug trenches upstream alongside the river Euphrates, which diverted the flowing water. The river gradually went down as it ran through Babylon. No one noticed. That night at the height of Belshazzar's drunken party, as outlined in Daniel 5, the water became low enough for Cyrus and his men to very stealthily slip under the double doors, which had been left open. Quickly they overran the doomed city, killing the king and conquering Babylon. Then Cyrus issued his famous decree to let Israel go. The Jews were free. Ingeniously, the revelation of Jesus Christ makes no makes use of the dusty history of the ancient event and then applies it with stunning apocalyptic force to another Babylon and another Israel and another Euphrates and another deliverer from the east. Do you all see the parallel there? See, in the Old Testament, the battle was clearly between the literal nation of Israel and the literal Babylon. But it's quite different in Revelation. We also find a struggle between Israel and Babylon. As you well know, the majority of prophecy teachers apply this, at least the Israel part of it, to literal Jews on the West Bank. But let's be consistent. What about Babylon? Does this apply to a rebuilt city south of Baghdad? Some people say, yeah, it does. The Bible and the evidence suggest otherwise. Jeremiah 51 and 26 says, But you shall be desolate forever, saith the Lord. Jeremiah 50 and 39 says, And it shall be no more inhabited forever, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. So what is this saying to us? There could not be another literal, physical Babylon. In Revelation 17, a shiny angel beckoned to John, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great horror that sits upon many waters. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit on a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having a golden cup in her hand. And upon her forehead was written, was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Revelation 17 and 1. John was in the spirit when he received this prophecy 
so we must be in the spirit to interpret it correctly. The woman's name is Mystery Babylon. The word mystery is very significant. In Revelation 1, the true interpreter, Jesus Christ used the same word as he applied the Jewish imagery of seven golden candlesticks to his church. In Revelation 17, the same word is applied to the enemy of his church. Who is that? Mystery Babylon. And this greater Babylon has no application to the ancient cities whose sun-cracked bricks are now whitening south of Baghdad, but in fact paper Rome as previously discovered. Let's think about the two Babylons. In the Old Testament days, literal Babylon sat on the literal river Euphrates. In the revelation of Jesus Christ, mystery Babylon also sits on many waters. Yet these waters don't refer to literal murky Euphrates River now trickling through modern Iraq. I'll prove it from one primary text. And this text is so explosively significant, it's like detonating a spiritual nuclear warhead against air. John's angel interpreter explained, The waters which you saw where the horses are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. Revelation 17 and 15. So here, according to the angel interpreter, the many waters of Revelation Euphrates represents people all over planet Earth who now support Mystery Babylon. They are drunk with the wine of her fornication. Wine is obviously symbolic as is her fornication is symbolic. The wine stands for Babylon's false doctrines, while her fornication applies to her unlawful union with the kings of the earth. Mystery Babylon is also a woman. As seen previously, a woman in prophecy represents a church. God likens his people to a wife that he has made herself ready for in in the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19 and 7. The Babylonian woman also has fallen. This must mean that mystery Babylon in Revelation represents a globally supported church that has fallen away from her true love, Jesus Christ, and from Bible truth and God's law. Yet God still has people inside of Babylon whom he calls my people. Before the last act of history's drama, he calls them to come out in Revelation 18 and 4. Why? Because the river Euphrates is dried and it's destined to run dry. So God has his children in all churches, including the Roman Catholic Church. Mystery Babylon. The sixth angel poured out a vial upon the great river Euphrates. And the water therefore was dried up, Revelation 16 and 12. In the Left Behind series, there there. Armageddon and countless other theologians apply this drying up of the Euphrates to a literal drying up of Asian armies so Asian armies can shoot bullets at the Jews in the Battle of Armageddon. But what does the Bible say dries up the river? Turkey? No. The word says the sixth angel poured out of his vow upon the great river Euphrates. This vow is one of the seven vows of the wrath of God. 
Thus it is the wrath of God, not Turkey, that dries up the Euphrates. What does it mean? I want you to brace yourself real quickly. If the waters represents people, and if the vial of the wrath falls on the water, then this means God's wrath will finally be poured upon people who steadfastly continue supporting Mystery Babylon, who thought to change God's law. When heaven's judgments fall on the swirling waters of Babylon supporting people, reality will be inescapable. They will realize they've been misled. Then they will hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire, according to Revelation 17 and 16. Thus their misplaced support for the false system, it will quickly vanish. This is how Babylon's water will dry up, preparing the way for the kings of the east, for the great battle of Armageddon. All of this is so true and it's so perfectly aligned in scripture. And today we thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast in the Truth Matters Ministries. And in our next podcast, we're going to be continuing and we're going to give the final episode in the submission of things in our study of eschatology. Remember to pray for us. We love you and God bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.